Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Series 7, Episode 8 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you are having a good day. I am currently sat in a hotel room in Liverpool. I was here last night for my tour, which was such fun, such joy. Oh, I loved it so much. At the Liverpool Everyman, which is an absolutely gorgeous theatre. If you live nearby, go and support it. It's got great stuff on, just brilliant. And it was run by absolutely lovely people. So I had a blast there. I was with my friend Jenny Bede, who's been opening some of the shows. She's now left to go home. And I'm going on to Loughborough for another tour show tonight. So I've got a day of writing and reading, which would be very nice. I mean, I'll miss my family. I'll miss Alice and the baby. And if I'm being on tour quite hard, if I'm honest, but I try and sort of focus on getting things done so that when I'm there, I'm really there. I mean, I don't know if that's too much information. I don't think so. I feel like we know each other, right? I mean, you guys definitely know me. But uh, that's, that's where I'm at at the moment. I'm touring around and trying to juggle uh, lots of things. But it's enormous fun. And I've met so many of you at tour shows. And it really is just unbelievably heartening to hear what this podcast means to you. Yeah, it's really, really special and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you to all of you that have come up to me after shows or have sent me messages. And I asked for more emails last week and boy, did I get them, but I still want more. I'm greedy. If you've been thinking of sending me your email, please do. I loved receiving more. I loved reading through them and I'll be able to share all of them at some point or another. Um, The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Uh, I got lots of lovely messages about Natasha's episode last week. If you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend it. I have got a fantastic episode for you today. Kevin James Thornton, who is a comedian, a musician, and a TikTok megastar. I don't really understand TikTok. What a huge surprise for us all. (laughs) But I kept coming across his videos, and his videos really made me laugh. And he talks a lot about being from a fundamentalist Christian church growing up and what that did to him as a gay man and we have a really interesting conversation about that today and about his journey and about the fact that he's having a moment which was like a very American thing to say which I quite like having a moment so I really hope that you enjoy that episode I think it's a really great one but before that as ever I have your emails Uh, let's start here Hi Susie, I'm emailing whilst listening to the Natasha Devon episode. I just couldn't wait to finish to email, so I'll also be listening again so that I'm not being totally rude. 
Firstly, I want to tell you my name is Liv. I forgot to tell you this when I met you after your show in Norwich. I did, however, tell you that I choked on my drink when I saw you because I was drunk. I was a nervous wreck. Brackets. Priorities. I also forgot to recommend a film called Blue Jean to you. I don't think it's been mentioned on the podcast yet. I don't think it has either. But... There's a lot of chat about Section 28. Blue Jean is a brilliant film from the perspective of a lesbian teacher during this time who accidentally finds herself having to help a young lesbian student with conflicts at school without outing her. It's really quite beautifully realistic. On to my bit of bisexual chat. Hearing Natasha talking about biphobia on the podcast made me nod along approvingly throughout. It's so important to address. I have a pre-coming out memory etched into my head that I think spells out what it is to be bi and how it feels to be invalidated. When having a testing the waters chat with my mum, which I think a lot of queer people do, I asked her about her friend's son who had just gotten a girlfriend after coming out of a relationship with a boy. I hadn't really asked her opinion, only hasn't, insert name, got a girlfriend now. She proceeded to go on a rant about how he's clearly confused and he's obviously gay and what even is bisexuality anyway. The rant lasted for quite some time before I stopped sitting there looking shocked and jumped into defensive mode. She paused for a moment after I'd said my piece and then said, why are you so defensive? You're not a lesbian, are you? You can tell me if you're gay, it's okay. I was shocked and silent and almost smiling on the inside over the moon of hearing it's okay. To break the silence, she then said, God, you're not bisexual, are you? I'll bloody string you up. Now, as my mum has never hung anybody, I actually wasn't scared by this threat. However, my mum has had a tumultuous relationship with my older brother, which has led to him being thrown out of the house, so I knew it wasn't altogether off the cards for me. I can't even remember my answer to her question to this day, but apparently I hadn't come out as she was still totally oblivious when I did tell her I was bisexual years later. All I do remember from that moment was that everything seemed to slow down and my heart was aching. I walked away from her and closed the door to my bedroom and was just too sad to cry. I merely pondered over my future and how it would look without my mum in it. When I'm older and I can move away and only speak to her at birthdays and Christmas. I was 16 or 17 at the time, at sixth form, knowing that I liked boys, but I was also in love with a girl. A girl who lived around the corner from me, who was my best friend in everybody else's eyes. A girl who loved me back. I was trying to navigate this first relationship whilst wondering what it means to have a relationship with another girl, needing to have the support of my friends and my mum, who I lived with. I think back to that time a lot, how I could have just told her that I was a lesbian. I wasn't even totally sure at the time, and I was dating a girl, so it wouldn't have been so bad if I did. But then I knew, and I still know now, that that wasn't true. They would have caused other problems down the line. I also think about the conversation not addressing the hurt she'd caused me and allowing her to think she wasn't talking about me. But, of course, she was talking about her friend's son, so how could she have possibly known that she was going to hurt me? Her not finding out who I really was in that conversation meant I kept my relationship that lasted about a year a secret from her. She still doesn't know. Meant that she missed out on helping me through my first heartbreak and meant that I lied when she asked me why I wasn't seeing my best friend over the holidays anymore. I came out to my flatmate on the first night of Freshers' Week. I was myself. I only allow people in my life on the grounds that I could cut them off if I thought they were remotely homophobic. I only dated straight men on the grounds they were having to respect that I was bi and that they would come to pride parades with me and not expect any heteronormative gender roles bullshit while we were dating. I'm now 25 and I have a bisexual girlfriend for three and a half years who reinforces my bi pride every day. Thank you, Ellie. That'll score some points if you read this out. (laughs) My life in my city with my friends and my relationship is perfect. 
I had to come out to my family once I knew I was serious about my girlfriend. So about two days in. I'm joking, it was three months. I came out knowing I could live totally independently if they chose not to accept the relationship. I was lucky in that I haven't had to cut them off. Their acceptance has grown and grown over the years. However, the awkwardness of biphobia, being a socially accepted kind of hate means that outside of my bubble, I know there are places I can't feel 100% myself and I have to bite my tongue to ignore comments. I hate that my family home, mum and dad's, are still those places for me a lot of the time. And that they are tarnished with those years where I had to pretend where homophobic and biphobic slurs were, and sometimes maybe are, still said. So I don't really go home home much. My life is here and the two worlds don't really mix a hell of a lot. The world would be a much better place if we all agreed to stop casually gaslighting bisexual people, if we were allowed to change our label without pre-apprehension or judgment and just let love be love. If you made it through all of this email, then thank you, and thank you for your awesome podcast. Okay, bye. Bye, 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 bye. Liv. P.S. You're welcome to use my name now. I've actually told you you can read this out. Thank you, Liv, so much for your email. I'm so pleased that Natasha's episode resonated with you. I was really hoping that it would. And getting more bisexual content on the podcast was something that I've been really wanting to do. So thank you to Natasha for that. And um, and I'm so pleased. It seems to have resonated with a lot of people. I've had a lot of responses about this episode. So I, I do really, really appreciate that. And thank you for the film recommendation, Blue June. I'm going to have a look at that. Um, and... It sounds like you've handled all of that in such a brilliant, grown-up way. And I say grown-up, I know you're 25, but I mean, you know, from how you dealt with it from when you were younger and having to, you know, live in a place where you didn't feel 100% you could be yourself, which I think lots of us have experienced. I'm so pleased that you're happy and in a happy place now and in a happy relationship. And I wish you and Ellie just all the best. And thank you for coming to my show. And thank you for listening to the pod. Okay. Let's have another one. Hi, Susie. I heard you were asking for more emails and I've been thinking about contacting you for a while. Well, no excuse not to now, so here goes. My story is this. After a string of failed relationships with men in my 20s, 30s and into my 40s, I'd thrown myself into my career and basically decided I wasn't cut out for relationships full stop. I was completely comfortable with my decision and had no interest in dating again and was perfectly happy to be on my own. I also moved to a city just before the pandemic following the most recent breakup, which was supposed to have been a fresh start. But then when lockdowns eased, I found myself feeling quite isolated with no local friends. Thank goodness for Zoom, which kept me going during lockdown. So my plan was to join some local groups and meet some people. It was in a cycling group that I met someone who I got on well with. We went for a coffee and to cut a long story short, I developed an instant and huge crush on her. Yes, you guessed it. She was a woman. I had to ask her out. I could suddenly imagine a future with someone. Suddenly all the things I'd never seen in my life became possibilities in my head. A life together, even possibly kids, which had not happened or even seemed likely in my previous relationships with men. She said no in the most lovely way, but it was a massive disappointment. I thought she was the one, but it wasn't to be. However, the genie was not going back in the bottle. I had thought that my love of your podcast plus my deep appreciation for queer performers and artists were just a sign of a really good ally. Brackets, Grace Petrie, Hannah Gadsby, shout out to the episode with Jess Foster Q and Emma Kennedy. And I've always loved Sue Perkins just because the list goes on and on. However, it suddenly became very clear there was more to it than that. 
it was like someone came up to me and shook me awake and my subconscious was yelling, uh, hello, at me. I also started researching. I was 47 and suddenly queer and feeling like a teenager. It was surreal, but I soon discovered there are many late bloomers like me and I even found some in my city. It took everything I had because I'm super shy, but I reached out online and joined some of the meetup groups and have been lucky enough to find a wonderful group of like-minded friends. By the way, I also love that podcast. Some late bloomers like me. Some not, but all thoroughly lovely people who've made me feel like I have a place in the world and I'm able to be fully myself at last. I haven't dated anyone yet because it feels more important to do the work on me first. And I really wanted to make friendships before jumping into anything romantic. But I'll always be grateful to my crush on her bike for opening my eyes to who I really am. And I'm super excited about what the future holds, as I know it'll be me living my life to the full. I think those who know my story will know who this is. But it's only been a year and I'm not quite confident enough to give my name yet. I'm out to some of my family and some closer friends who have all been great so far. But coming out is a work in progress as I battle with the need to even come out at all, as it shouldn't be anyone else's business. I do understand, though, that it's much easier to live authentically when people are aware, so my queer friends are massively important to me as I work out who I am in a completely accepting environment. Thank you so much for your podcast. I can't tell you how much it's helped me to hear other people's stories and start to understand how it is possible I could have not realised this fundamental truth about myself until now. Thanks to Section 28 and Hatronormativity. I'm coming to see your show this week with a group of friends and we're all very excited. I'll probably talk myself out of this, but I would love to come and say hi at the end. And one day I hope I feel comfortable being loud and proud about who I am, one day at a time. Thanks so much for everything you do. It's meant more to me than I can say as I go through my journey. Oh, that one got me right in the feels. I am so pleased that this podcast has helped you in, in, in that way. And I'm so happy for you that you found a tribe of mates. And I think seeing yourself in your friendship group is so important. And I'm so pleased that you've got that. And wow, how exciting. How exciting for what you've got to come. And yeah, I'm wishing you nothing but the best. And uh, thank you for sharing your story with me. It really means a lot. Oh, I love the email bit. People always say it to me too when they meet me after shows. They'll be like, ah, I love the podcast, I love the interviews, but the emails, the emails, and I really feel the same. So thank you. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Please send one in. Thank you so much to those two gorgeous emailers today. Okay, let's get on with today's conversation with the brilliant Kevin James Thornton. I think this was a really interesting conversation, and I loved getting to know him a little bit and hearing about his journey to TikTok stardom. Enjoy. Okay, listener, I am very excited for today's conversation. Kevin James Thornton is having a moment. He has over 2 million followers on Instagram and TikTok with combined views of nearly a billion. Now, I came across him last year and I immediately loved his hilarious takes on growing up gay in an American Baptist church. Very funny, endearing, occasionally moving, a little bit cringeworthy, He's the real deal, and he's managed to squeeze in time to talk with me whilst here in the UK playing packed-out rooms across the country. But don't worry if you've missed out on tickets, he is back on our shores in the autumn. A comedian, a musician, a writer, a viral sensation. I'm so thrilled to chat to him today. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
you're having like a real moment. I feel like I slipped into a different dimension or something. <laughs> it's been the most wild last couple of years I could have ever imagined. So, uh, first of all, how are you finding crowds in the UK? It's been great. I have so many weirdly specific references in my act. I was a little afraid little <laughs> would sort of get lost, but, and it does happen occasionally. I can tell it's like, oh, they don't know what that is. So right. just explain it. And then it, it, it's been fine. Because I find that the US, well, I've only gigged in Canada, but I find that sometimes British crowds can be slightly more reserved. Have you found that? It's been actually every place I've gone has been a little bit different. The two shows I had in Scotland, those audiences were very lively. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. And I was in Oxford a couple nights ago and they were much quieter. And I was like, oh, maybe this is just not really clicking here. But afterwards, everyone was like, we loved it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, I think that's very true of British audiences. They're very sort of, they not everywhere, but certainly in some places, often in the home counties, which is like just around London, but not London, sort of commuter cities. Yeah. People can be very like, yes, this is very amusing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. Yes. This is a good time. We're having a good time. <laughs> but they don't necessarily, they're not as effusive yeah. as, as some other places around the UK. Now, often on the podcast, we sort of work, chronologically and I've been doing some research on you and about your sort of backstory but it's always better to get it from you I know that you grew up on the border of Indiana is that right yes it's the very southernmost point of Indiana mm -hmm. it's sort of like the last stop before you cross into the south I guess mm -hmm. and it sort of feels like the south in some ways even though it's not officially and what do you mean by that like when it feels like the south to a British crowd well, America has a, a sordid history. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you know, the Southern, I mean, listen, there's a lot of lovely places and people in the South, but it's mm -hmm. definitely where you might overgeneralize and say it's the, where all the conservative people are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, a lot more religious. A lot of guns. <laughs> more guns than you could throw. Than people, yeah. sure. Okay. And... Obviously, in your uh, in sort of what I've seen of you online, you talk a lot about growing up in a fundamentalist Christian church. Now, I know that in the UK we do have sort of elements of that, but it does feel like in the States it's sort of that on speed, maybe. Yes. And so what did that look like for a British crowd? Like, what did the church look like? What was the vibe? What was how intense was it? It was, well, I think that the element that made it even more intense is this is all before the internet existed. Mm -hmm. So I was in a small community and with no internet and even on the television, like maybe the only progressive voice you heard was MTV, mm -hmm. you know, like, so the only people I could hear were those directly around me. And it was such a religious sort of small town mentality place. And you could either get yourself in trouble or you could go to church. Mm. No, and the churches there put on huge, almost parties for teenagers to draw all the teenagers in. So Sunday morning would be this like church gymnasium with 200 teenagers and there's pizza and music and, you know, they really draw kids in and then sort of like program you with this really intense message that largely centers around sexuality, sort of preserving the purity of your sexuality, you know? Right, okay. And, and so, and when you're, you know, when you're 
16 years old and that's all you're hearing and you think that's what the world is you know it's uh yeah it can cause a lot of problems for people like me <laughs> yeah of course and, and were you obviously you, you know i understand sort of the purity stuff and i've heard about like purity rings and things like that in sort of christian colleges in america but how much sort of fire and brimstone about sort of that passage in leviticus that people love to talk about when they're angry at gays like how often was preaching happening around sort of queer sexuality specifically in those days this might seem this might be a bit of, of a surprise i i've sometimes wonder if it's not harder for queer youth today because lgbtq things are way more on the forefront mm. than they were then um so there was definitely a, a mess i mean it was well thought of that uh homosexuality was absolutely a sin, but it wasn't mm -hmm. like they were talking about it all the time. Cause this is like the late eighties, early nineties, like nothing was even really on the TV that much about mm. gay people. We didn't even know what trans people were, you know, mm -hmm. but I knew those verses were there. And once in a while, the pastor would preach about it as if it was the worst possible thing. So I held on to those messages and knew that no one could ever find out. It, it would be a it would be a really really big deal if anyone knew my secret, you know. So, yeah. but it wasn't like that's all they talked about. I think today, in some churches, it might be all they're talking yeah. about in America. Yeah, you know, totally. <laughs> I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but like, I think that when I was growing up, because I didn't really know any, I didn't know any lesbians. I didn't. I sort of knew that there was some gay men. And I kind of thought, well, I guess I'm kind of like them, but I couldn't quite work out why. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I sort of see some sort of like relation to this older camp man that's occasionally on TV. Um, but I remember seeing Ellen and watching Ellen and thinking, oh, God. And I remember thinking, oh, I guess there's like five or six of us. Mm -hmm. Like I genuinely thought there was like such a small pool yeah. of gay people. And I'm just wondering, like, if you were in such an enclosed environment, like, did you, was there a point when you were like, am I the only one? Absolutely. Mm. Yes. I, I, I did not think, I, I, I thought I was all alone for sure. Mm. It, it, it was not until I went to college and I went, I went to college and majored in musical theater. So sure, was, <laughs> sure. Look, you know, we, we make no assumptions on this podcast, but, but sure. But, but I hear what you're saying. So that was the first time. And I went to college a little bit late. I was maybe 22 years old. I didn't know that there were other gay people who were fine with being gay and mm. were in a community where nobody was bothered by it. I did not even know that was an option until I was like 22 years old in the musical theater department. I sort of fled my hometown instinctually. I didn't right. know why, but I was like, I have to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up at college and I was like, wait, there's, there's like happy gay people here. <laughs> I didn't even know that that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> was that frightening or liberating? Both. Right. I was not I was not ready to dive in myself, mm -hmm. but I it was a it was definitely a culture shock. So it was it was exciting and scary at the same time. I sort of kept myself at, at bay for the first year or so. Yeah, did you not sort of want to be too close to anyone that might hold a mirror up? Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point I knew, but I didn't, I hadn't really accepted myself at all. 
And, uh-huh. and I started dating a guy for the first time. And I was still, I found my way to this conservative campus church. So like on Sundays, I would go to the campus church. And then the rest of the week, I was hanging out with my boyfriend and in total conflict about it. Yeah. <laughs> We've often talked before on this podcast about like a first crush or, you know, a first partner or the first, like, you know, a first kiss or something like that. How far into like, if you're saying that version of you when you arrived and it was like a year until you, you know, were even considering, you know, coming out or being a bit closer to coming out. How long into it did you have a boyfriend? How long into your, to your college? It was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't want to deal with this, but let's get on with it. Okay. Yeah, let's well, let's I, meet I, some boys. I think I was in such a place where like all of my teenage years were like resisting, resisting, repress, yeah. repress. I would, I got to a, a breaking around 20 years old. I was definitely at a breaking point and I didn't know what the answer was, but I was so tired mm. of fighting it. Yeah. You know? And so when I showed up at college, I still had like a lot of mental conflict, but I was tired of fighting it. And I was sort of presented with two worlds. The church world mm. was still there and gay people with a gay bar downtown, one gay bar downtown, you know? And so I was sort of existing in both of those spaces and with cognitive dissonance, mm. but like it was instinct and my brain like fighting each other for like, a yeah, game, you know, <laughs> what was it like the first time you went into a gay bar? So my high school years were 1988 to 1992. And that was like the height of the AIDS era. Of course. And when course. I, when I got to college, it was like maybe 1993. So still AIDS era, but mm-hmm. maybe past the absolute worst of it. But I walked into this little gay bar on the college campus and it was all older men mm-hmm. and a, a handful of college students. The middle generation didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like men in their thirties yeah. and forties weren't there. You know, yeah. men in my age group now is kind of a new generation because a lot yeah. of us died, you know? Yep, yeah, 100%, yeah. I didn't mean to make this so heavy, like. No, no, but that's what it's, you know, it, it, it's light, it's heavy, we laugh, yeah, we, yeah. you know, we, we, it's about reflecting on everything. But I think that's, it, it's something, also, you don't, you know, don't worry, you're not the first uh, person to talk about that, the missing part of our gay elders. Yeah. And the fact that we, we don't have those people around. How much of the AIDS crisis was, you know, I mean, how much did that impact that, young you when you were in the church when you were still at home was there an element of oh well this is the punishment absolutely and and it was like the perfect storm of repression you know yeah you know what you did see on tv was about aids yes you know and and people in my church absolutely thought it was god's punishment you know so Mm -hmm. and again it wasn't that's all they were talking about because gay people were not on like the American mm-hmm. forefront of what we're thinking about, like it yeah. is today. There was a very famous advert in the UK that was a tombstone that just had AIDS on it. And it was like this very slow advert of someone like bashing the word AIDS into uh, a tombstone. And I've spoken to a lot of guys, especially on the show, that, you know, that felt so personal. And so frightening that like that specific advert probably kept them in the closet for like another three years. It was like, oh, okay, well, I've seen that now, so I can't unsee it. Yeah. I can only imagine that being so 
compounded by being in such a homophobic environment. Now, once you got to college, did you work in musical theatre? Like what was then your, I know that you've worked in music, I know that you've worked in country, which I love, but I'm interested now into your sort of, not only your route to stand up, but your route of being like, this sort of like celebrated queer guy, like, oh God, look at this fabulous gay man that we, that of course we all love, who's talking about the 90s. We've got to love him. What was your route then with sort of musical theatre and how did that work for you? Well, my, I think sometimes people imagine when I'd say I, I come from this very conservative Christian church, they imagine this culture of like old men in suits and everything's very old fashioned with hymns. In my church, there's a, it, I think this still exists, but there was this sort of mainstream American church that tried to make themselves seem super modern. So mm. all of the music was like rock music. Christian like, rock. Yeah. Like the, that's like huge in the States, right? Yes. And especially in those days, like, so our Sunday morning service had, I'm not kidding, like smoke machines and lasers and <laughs> a rock band singing the opening worship music. And it was, ve- they, they wanted it to feel like you were watching MTV. Like they mm. wanted to appeal to people like that, especially youth. Mm. So I started a Christian rock band because that was like really admired in that culture. Like it was almost like the highest calling. If you wanted to be a Christian rock singer, that was like the coolest you could do. So that's where it started for me is just participating in that culture's idea of like what was the coolest possible ministry you could do mm-hmm. you know it was really appealing to me how old would you have been at that time uh i was like you know 16 years old yeah I, you know 16 17 when i really dove into it and did you tour around different churches like how does that work yeah what do you do yeah yeah, yeah, okay. yeah yeah like i said it's, it was pre-internet and so like yeah all there was to do was to go to church and then you know in the surrounding yeah. communities to find a coolness in that. Like, I assume that other teenagers were like, oh, he's in the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's great. Like, if that's your, if, that, if they're the people that you're hanging out with, you want to be cool in whatever yes, setting yeah. you're in. You're a teenager. Yeah. I saw a very funny clip of yours um, about when, was it your key, the keyboard player didn't have mm-hmm. a keyboard and they had to play someone's keyboard who wasn't a Christian? Yes. And you had to have a band meeting about it? Yeah, we did. <laughs> and it was serious so, too. It's, I mean, it's yeah. hilarious now. All those stories, like, they're ridiculous now, but at the time I remember we, so yeah, we had to borrow a keyboard for a show. And then it was discovered after that the owner of the keyboard was not a Christian. And the the keyboard player specifically was super upset that he did not realize he was playing a keyboard that was not a Christian keyboard, I guess. Yeah, heathen keyboard. Heathen keyboard. It doesn't even make any sense, but he sort of called this meeting, like he felt betrayed. Mm. that it, it was almost like his fingers got dirty or it, mm. it's, it's obscene, but like. But at the time you, you obviously took it really seriously. Yes, like it yeah. was, it was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Christian rock to musical theater. I mean, obviously we've got some crossover. We've got Jesus Christ superstar. We've got Godspell. Yeah. There's like, although I'm not sure how much would those shows have been um, accepted at, at, at your church. Um, but what was the, the, there was then the calling to musical theatre for one reason or another. Um, did you, did you want to then go on and perform in, in musicals? Was that, was that the aim for you? Was it writing? Was it? No, in that, in that time, it was just a means to an escape. 
Right. Sure. I wasn't thinking about career or it was just like, I had done lots of plays in school. I loved Mm -hmm. being a part of music things. And I knew uh, there was sort of a path to going, leaving my town for college and it would be paid for. And I knew that was, that was my, that was my way out. I didn't even really want to go to college, but I was like, if I'm going to be here, I might as well do something fun. Mm -hmm. So musical theater is, it is. (laughs) And did you move far away? Yes, it was. Well, yes, it was maybe five or six hours from home. Right. Yeah, that's pretty far. That's about as far as you can get in the UK. Yeah, so yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> to, to us, that sounds massive. But I appreciate how big uh, the States is. Yeah. But then when you were in this environment with these new gay people, gay, maybe going to a gay bar, maybe having a boyfriend on the quiet, yeah. you know, was then your sort of chasm between you as as, as a college student and you as the boy in the Christian rock band, was that slowly getting bigger and bigger? Yeah. It's so when I left, my whole worldview was shattered apart, Mm. you know, and I didn't, my identity was taken from me almost, you know, I was, I was really lost. Mm. I mean, I think that when people see me today laughing and telling jokes and laughing about things on the internet, I, yeah, I'm in a much different place. That was 30 years ago. Um, but I, when I showed up to college, I was in a dark place. And when I, when I look back at that, I'm, I'm just like, how did I survive that? I was in such mental torment, you know, and and I just, I was so exhausted. I didn't want to fight anymore. So like when I showed up and, you know, those first couple of years of just sort of letting go and making peace with that part of my life being over those people not in my life anymore. Mm. All those things that I thought were so important are fading into my past. And here comes a new thing. And it turns out Mm. the new thing felt way better, you know? So at some point there was a tipping point where I was like, I'm never going back to that because that felt awful. Yeah. (laughs) These new people and this new stuff feels good. So I'm just going to run toward that, you know? Absolutely, because I can only imagine that when you are from a place where church is everything, you know, that when you when you step away from it, you're losing not just a church, but your friends, your yeah. interests, your hobbies. Yeah. You know, just everyone that you socialize with, even in a non-church way, yeah. which must be really frightening. And so, how was it when you ran towards that? Like, I'm sure it took time to yeah. sort of uh, find the joy, but was there like a relief, like when you? when you were, you know, found these friends, found people, found people that are like us. Yeah. It was a, it was a slow relief because I didn't allow myself to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. I sort of transitioned all through college. Like by the time I was leaving college, I, the, the journey was complete. (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, and I, I realized that I was holding on unnecessarily. I was, you know, it, it was time to, turn a new page. And I fully had turned that page by the end of college. When I left uh, college, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And when I showed up in Nashville, I I felt like a whole person, but it was, you know, it was like a six year journey. Yeah. What's Nashville like for LGBT plus people? Well, right now it's not great. Right. It's sort of ground zero for a lot of the terrible things that are happening in America right now. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was, uh, I mean, it's it's a progressive little city in the middle of a very conservative state. 
the, right. the American South, like we started to mm-hmm. begin with. All of the major cities throughout the South tend to be progressive, surrounded by a lot of not progressive people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right now we're going through it in Nashville because they're, they're sort of targeting trans people as enemy number one. Yeah. Yeah. And am I, I'm right in thinking that Nashville is like the home of country music. It is. Yes. And so that's, is that what drew you there? Yeah. The music business in general. Um, I just, you know, I knew, uh, when I was finished with college, I'd had a moment where I was like, should I go to New York and pursue theater? And I was like, no, I think I want to start a band. So mm-hmm. that's why I, that's where, you know, not just country music, all of at the record labels right. were a much bigger thing back then, but yes. all of the record labels were there. You could get signed in Nashville. You could with any genre of music. So right. it was an easier place to live than New York. You know, the cost of living was lower. So, yeah. so yeah, I moved there to, to start a band and be in music. And was comedy even on your radar then? Like, did Not you know about, you were funny? You know, it's like at that point, if you had said you're ultimately going to end up doing comedy, I would not have believed it. But looking back over my life, there has been so many moments where like in high school, I ran for class president every year just so I could get up and give a silly speech. Sure. You know, I did. There's lots of things like that where I just wanted to make people laugh. I, it never occurred to me that, hey, maybe that's what you're best at. It took me a long yeah. time to get there. Because <laughs> it's such a daunting thing stand up is whenever I tell someone what I do for a job their instant response is always I would hate to do that it's so funny when your job is like people's worst nightmare but it's just like oh god I'd hate to be a stand up god I don't know how you do that isn't it horrible I started stand up when I was 25 but now I'm 37 I'm like I don't know how I had the balls to do that I don't know how I don't know how I started yeah. Like the idea of starting now sounds because you're shit for so long. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you're good in moments yeah. rather than good in good for a whole set. It's interesting when you piece back. I know. I think a lot of comedy pals would say the same. You can sort of go, oh yeah, I was always trying to be a stand-up, but I wasn't calling it stand-up. Yeah. Yes. And so when you were then sort of going for it in the music industry, I'm thinking, you know, this must've been sort of late nineties. Am I right? No, at this point, we're, we're, this is probably like 2005. Okay, sure. So were you in a band where you could be out? Were you happy to be out? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I was totally out at that point. Right. There were, when I showed up in Nashville, a handful of people were like, you should not be out. Mm. It'll hurt your career. Yeah. Um, and I just decided I'm not doing that. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to be an out person in Nashville. And that's just, mm-hmm. that is what it is. Did it hurt me? I don't really know. I mean, I didn't, mm. I didn't work. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe it did. Maybe I should have taken their advice. And were you aware of sort of the reflections of people from your hometown? Did you ever cross paths with people that were from that sort of old part of your life? Not really. When I finally left, it, they never came after me. And I I'd often, I, you know, the, the way that that circle, when I was in it, I think I was almost certain if I tried to leave, they would come find me or, you know, and they yeah. totally didn't. Like when I left, it was over. I've never heard from most of those people in 30 years. It was almost like an instant break. It's just such a small community, you know, and it, yeah. again, before the internet. So when I drove away from town, I never saw them again. Yeah. And have you been back at all? Yeah, I go, yeah, my parents live there. So, oh, sure, when, yeah, yeah. You know, for the holidays, but I don't really see anyone. How 
long were you in music before you started? Because I read that you were sort of doing some solo storytelling comedy yeah. style shows from like 2009. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So tell me about that route from, from music into comedy. So the, the Nashville trying to get a record deal journey was maybe about 10 years total. And we got kind of close. We did sort of get a, it was in the era where the whole music industry was changing because of iTunes and downloads yeah. and people stopped, kind of stopped buying CDs. Oh, Napster. Yes, Napster. Stuff like that, right? Being yes, able to it was, it was that era get where music we were like, legally, all, yeah. we were so close to getting a deal and then the industry kind of fell apart. Oh. Um, and Heartbreaking? I, yeah. I was like, oh God, this is like 10 years of my life and it's not working. Oh. You know? Yeah, totally. And so I was sort of not in the right mindset, I think, because I was like, I have to do something totally different. Like, I can't do that again. I'm kind of tired and done with it. Mm. And I packed up my bags and moved to Los Angeles to pursue stand-up comedy. I'd never done it before. <laughs> I think I think just something inside me was like, it's time. <laughs> Great. You had yeah, to wait. You had to I, wait. You had to have those 10 years of music. Yeah. That's, that's when your soul was ready for it. Yeah. And I, I moved to LA and I, I signed up for a stand-up comedy class. Sure. And worked at a coffee shop and waited tables. And I lived um, like three blocks away from the comedy store in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And so I would, uh, every night that I had free, I would walk to the comedy store and just sit in the back and watch. Mm -hmm. And that was my life for a year or so, just kind of observing and taking classes and eventually having the guts to go up myself at the, the yeah. first time I ever went on stage was at the comedy store. And I was terrible, of course. You know? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had started writing some things that were comedy, but they weren't quite stand up. And that's the sort of one man show that you are referring yeah. to. By 2009, I had written, it was funny, but it was more of as like a storytelling piece. Yeah. And I went on the Fringe Festival circuit for quite a while with that show. Sure. Yeah. What is the Fringe Festival circuit in America? Is that all over the place? Yes. The, pretty much every major city has one. Right. Oh, so, wow. And there are, I mean, it's not a great living, but there are people who just do Fringe Festivals full time. And I was, wow. I was one of those people for maybe three or four years. Right. Um, you know, just I was, traveling, staying in digs, yep. doing your show for a bit. Festival to festival. I mean, there was one year I did 20 festivals. Wow. Yeah. That's and just too kind of, much, it's absolutely too much. <laughs> um, and it was like just enough money to get to the next place and feed myself and fix my car. And yeah. You know. <laughs> and what was the aim for you? That's probably the time we were still doing DVDs. But like, what was the the dream? Was it to headline shows? Was it to write stuff? That's a complex question for me because, you know, at this point when I was doing those festivals. I was in my mid thirties and even, you know, I was, t I was, I live most of my youth exhausted first from Jesus. Sure. And then second, just sort of putting myself through it. Like, I think I was like trying to prove myself or, mm -hmm. you know, sort of leaving that fundamentalist upbringing sent me on this other path of like trying to prove that I was worth something or I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's, you yeah. know, it's one of those things. Turns out I developed some great skills along the way, but it was like hard, you know, yeah. and 
you know, by my mid thirties, I'm doing those festivals and just broke and tired. And, you know, although those festivals, they put you up in someone's home, you know, or like in someone's couch basement or, you know, yeah. not a hotel. It's like a, an arts patron giving you their spare room, you know? Yeah. And that's never relaxing. Yeah, it's not. And I, you know, I just had no privacy for so long. I was just sort of like flying around the planet with no, you know, tethered anything. Yeah. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I don't know what the, so you're asking, what was the goal? I don't really know. You know, and I, I, I started to come to terms with like, I'm not particularly happy. This has been a really long journey. I don't even know what I'm doing, you know? And I'm like, I, I would like to just be happy. Like whatever that is, it's not this. I'm going to try and just be happy. And I think it involves living quite a bit differently, <laughs> you know? So I, I returned to Nashville and I took up photography and I, you know, eventually I opened a photography studio and just, started to do creative things where I could maybe make some money and just kind of settle my soul a little bit. Yeah. And I did, I totally did. Like it, I, 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 something inside me shifted and grounded and I, you know, that was maybe sort of the becoming the person I am today when I was 40, I'm almost 50 and 10 years ago when I was 40 is like when I was really sort of wrapping up that, old way of life and just like, I want, you know, this is my life. It's, it's really flying by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'd like to just feel safe and settled and not be broke all the time. So like, you know, it's really, that was really only 10 years ago when I sort of made that shift. I thought performing and comedy and all that stuff was in my past. Mm. I, I relate to that. I mean, in a different way, obviously so much, but the, the proving yourself, I remember thinking, Oh, me being gay is going to be such a big disappointment to my family. So I better give them something to be proud of. Mm. That was like my Gatorade. Just like, oh, well, I'll just keep doing it. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. I'll, I'll travel everywhere. I'll do all the gigs. I'll do all the shows. I'll just get better and better and better. And then it, they'll love me in spite of my gayness. Not that they gave me any reason to think that. And I think part of it was so that I could love myself. So that I was like, oh, I'm not terrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's sad, but I think it's so relatable. Talk to me about then how you've become Kevin James' sort of viral sensation. So you, you're 10 years ago, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do this photography studio. You're back in Nashville. You're, you know, you're, you're getting tethered. Yes. Um, <laughs> happily being tethered yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Having a bit of privacy, having a shower for as long as you want. Yes. <laughs> uh, every morning, which is, a, which is a joy. How did it all come about that, you know, it was the 90s, these really funny videos that just seemed to hit people in a moment where they wanted to be entertained. How did that, how did that look from your end? It was very much the, the weird world shift of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. There was a moment where it seemed like everyone at once downloaded TikTok. Yeah. And, and I did too, just like, just mm -hmm. to watch, it was like a way, it was a new form of entertainment that you could watch by yourself hiding from everyone in your car, you know, or, or, or <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of those early stories were from my one man show that I toured in my fringe festival. So I, I had seen some things that other people were doing and I was like, I could, I could do a little funny thing on TikTok. So I didn't really think much about it. I just recorded one of my stories in like a 60 second version of it. The vocal effect was an accident afterthought. <laughs> I had seen some other people do something kind of similar 
but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to sing this story with yeah. this weird effect on my voice. Yeah. It's kind of like an auto tune type yeah. thing. Is it, that right? It like yeah. creates harmonies and it sounds. Yeah. Um, so I, I sang the story thinking very little about it. And the first, the first video I got, got like half a million views or something. And I was like, whoa, that's never that's bananas. <laughs> yeah. And so I made another one and that one got like a million views. And it just like everything I posted in that era was just golden. Like it like I, it's like I could do no wrong on that app. And within a month, I had 250,000 followers. And in that time period, I mean, this is TikTok has changed a lot. But in that yeah. era, like so many people told me, when they downloaded TikTok, I was the very first video that TikTok showed them. And it just blew up very, very quickly. And I remember I walked into a coffee shop near my house and all of the baristas were like, we love your TikToks. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's weird. And literally I, I left the coffee shop and walked into a grocery store and the grocery store clerk was like, I love your TikToks. And I went back to my car. I had a moment where I was like, if I stop this right now, it will end. But if I keep going, something's going to happen. I could feel like the ground rumbling underneath me almost. It just skyrocketed. I mean, you know, in that first year. And then how long before you were like, okay, I'm going to get back on stage. I'm going to get back on. It, so the, the evolution of that was. You know, for for a moment, I had the world's attention. Yeah, you know? and like people, it's wild. It is like, and I, it's still. I mean, it's it's still. I have moments like right now. I've been on tour in the UK for the last three weeks, and I'm like, people all around the world know who I am. Or, yeah, or to these shows, it's crazy. You know, and then you know, in the fall, I'm coming back and then going to Paris and Amsterdam, yeah. and uh, it's just like I. This is wild. Yeah. So because I was like, I was starting to get offers of people wanting me to promote their products. And of course. Of course. Yeah. All of that. I just made another TikTok that was like, I think I need an agent. I don't know what I'm doing. And an agent responded. A fantastic agent. I, and uh, I signed with Innovative Artists, which is a huge agency in the US. And they have, they're one of the biggest comedy bookers mm -hmm. in the country. And I didn't know that at first. I was just sort of like, I think I need some help organizing all this. And in getting to know me, she was at, she found out about my stand-up past. And she was like, would you want to do that again? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. It, like, I really wore myself out last time. Yeah. I, I kind of like intentionally left that behind because I was so exhausted from a lot of it. But we booked a few shows tentatively and it was a completely different experience. You know, I'm like sleeping in a decent hotel. Yeah. I flew to the gig. Yeah. I, and it was a sold out room. It was amazing feeling. It was just like, oh, I could do this. Like, this, yeah, this is not what it was like back then. I could do this. And so uh, it was tentative at first. But then I was like, you know what? This is this. I know this sounds over important and overly dramatic but to me it feels like this is my destiny yeah I, I feel like this is why i'm on the planet you know and i i like and then nobody else needs to feel that way that's fine but i feel yeah i feel like this is what it was all for like and i mean i, I told now i'm i'm all in on 
traveling and doing these shows. I'm having the best time of my life. It's a wild dream come true. But like when I'm on stage and just like telling my story from like the depths of my Mm -hmm. soul, (laughs) it's like, I went through all of that so I could do this. And like, you know, hearing an audience laugh and have some release from maybe things that they experienced has just been like, this is why I'm here. I don't even believe in destiny or gods or anything, but if there were some, the, that it was this all going is why here. they put me here. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy for you. Thanks. <laughs> That's so awesome. And I'm pleased that you've mentioned coming back to the UK and that you, how much you're enjoying touring. It's worth noting that you're at the Opera House in Newcastle. Beautiful theatre, beautiful room. Um, then you're at the Adelphi in the West End, which, I mean, playing a West End theatre as a stand-up is the best. There's nothing better. Oh, it's beautiful. God. It's perfect. It, you're going to have, like, the night of your life. Yeah. It's where Chicago was for years, the Adelphi. Oh. Just a little just a little bit of musical theatre trivia for you. Then you're back at the Lowry in Salford Keys, and then you're going to Birmingham Town Hall. So I highly recommend people buy tickets and go along and see Kevin's brilliant show. I'm going to ask you one more question before I let you go, and sure. it's the question I ask absolutely everyone on the show. It's kind of... What advice would you give to a person in a similar position to you? Or indeed, if you could pick up a dream phone and ring that version of yourself. And I'm thinking of the version of Kevin when he first got to college and maybe you were going to that gay bar and you saw people that were like you and you had that boyfriend, but you were still struggling with the different things going on in your head, the different versions of who you are. You know, now being you who is brilliantly out, brilliantly happy talking about this story to sold out crowds famous around the world what advice what encouragement would you give to someone in a similar position to you then it would be something about possibility the thing i think i didn't understand when you're living your life and having your experience it kind of seems like that's all there is or that's that's what you've got that's what you've got mm-hmm. but the possibility for something different is always there even when it like really seems like it isn't there's always the possibility for something better, something worse too, I suppose. But if you just sort of allow yourself to be open to the possibility of something new, things can be better. And like the, the if you're having a terrible experience, there's the possibility for something better. Perfect. A little bit of hope. Yeah. That is a gorgeous way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Well, that was the brilliant Kevin James Thornton. I hope that you really enjoyed it. Oh, wow, I've just seen the time. I have to run now because I've just realised I've got 22 minutes to check out of my hotel and I am still in my PJs. So I'll see you next week for another brilliant episode. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at com. I'll speak to you then. I hope you have a good week. Bye. Bye.